You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the new Blue Review. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you on this Monday morning. It's a bit chilly out there, but it's nice and warm in the studio, and we need the rain, so uh, I'm not complaining. hope you've been looking at the fantastic jacarandas that are dotting our city at the moment here in Johannesburg. I think they're absolutely beautiful. It's one of my favorite times of year, and I'm really enjoying it almost as much as I'm enjoying bringing you the show today which is going to be jam-packed and full of fun so uh, good to be with you by the way if you want to be part of our conversation 0618951019 that's our whatsapp line 34519 is the sms and we will be happy to take uh, your calls and comments on what we're going to be talking about today before we get into that uh, well done to king david school foundation on the kululam uh, project yesterday i think it was really really great uh, i went there i was a couple of mates my mother family members and uh, we all had a great time, and I think it was a great example of Israeli culture uh, engaging with uh, the diaspora. Uh, this was the first time that Kululam uh, actually performed outside of Israel, and so hopefully this will be the launch of many, many interesting international collaborations, and hopefully they'll be back in South Africa as well, not just with our own Jewish community, uh, but with uh, many others. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. It was great. So coming up on the show today, we're going to be talking all sorts of things. We don't talk enough peace. You know, we don't talk enough peace. So I've got Gershon Baskin uh, in a little while. He's going to be talking to us. He is a veteran peace activist and is credited with one of the people who helped get the release of Gilad Shalit. So we're going to be finding out uh, from him where he sees the Middle East at the moment. And what does he understand everything to be all about? I'm looking forward to that. And we're also going to be talking about the Norman Hotel. Now, if you are a, a hotel aficionado, uh, then you will be... Uh, I'm sure familiar with the Norman Boutique Hotel in Tel Aviv, which consistently is rated uh, uh, very, very highly in terms of where it's at. And we're going to be finding out because it's got an unusual backstory. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're going to be doing. Taking a short break now. And when we come back, we're talking peace activism with Gertrude Baskin. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, this is the new Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman and welcome to it. Now, a few years ago you would have known about the release of Gilad Shalit. It was big news all over the world. And... The man who is credited with helping to make it possible, his name is Gershon Baskin, and he is an author, he's an activist, and he's been working on issues of peace in 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 the Middle East and between the Israelis and the Palestinians for many years. Uh, he's actually just written a new book called In Pursuit of Peace in Israel and uh, Palestine, and uh, he is someone who's really walks the walk when it comes to this kind of activism. So I thought it would be great to have him in the studio and talking to us and he joins us all the way from Israel. Gershon, welcome to the New Blue Review. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Gershon, I want to start off a little bit with your story because you were born in the United States and uh, you made Aliyah to Israel and simultaneously got involved with uh, peace-related efforts while you were there. What, 
want to start. What caused you to to make this kind of a decision? Well, I I um in the states grew up, so to speak, in Young Judea, the largest Zionist youth movement that was in the United States at the time, and I was an activist and I was. Uh, engaged and a leader in the movement. And one of the things that we learned in Young Judea uh, was that when you make Aliyah to Israel, it's not just a change of address, it's a change of essence. And that we as Jews making Aliyah to our homeland have a responsibility to dedicate our lives to making Israel a better place. Uh, When I sat down with myself and thought about what it was that intrigued me about Israel and it called me, so to speak, to make a decision of what I would want to do with my life. I, I identified three major issues that I thought needed a lot of work in Israel. One of them was the gaps between the social justice issues that we talk about today. In the in the 70s, when I made Aliyah, it was talking about the relationship between Ashkenazim and Sfaradim or Mizrahim. Uh, there was the issue of Israeli democracy, mainly the rights of the Palestinian Arab minority in Israel, and there was the larger Israeli-Arab conflict. Um, and, and that was what I was most interested in. I studied it in university, got my first degree in politics and history of the Middle East. As a child, I was involved in the civil rights movement in the United States and the anti-Vietnam War movement. I boycotted uh, apartheid South Africa uh, as a value that we learned when we were young, growing up as liberal American Jews. So it just seemed natural that when I came to Israel, this is what I would do. Now, when you got to Israel, uh, you didn't actually start off with the the Palestinian issue. You managed to import some interesting American models to help, as you say, deal with some of those social justice gaps. Uh, You even wrote to the prime minister at the time asking him uh, to set up uh, certain organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I thought it was a fascinating insight. Well, actually, I wanted to get involved in the Israeli-Palestinian issue, and in 1976, together with two friends from Judea, we went to meet with the PLO ambassador in the United Nations in New York City, um, thinking that we could approach him to recognize the state of Israel and support a two-state solution. This is at a time when no one talked about a two-state solution. Um, His response was not surprising but disappointing. It was over my dead body. You Jews have no right to be where you are. You stole our land. You should go back to where you came from. Um, so I knew that there was no starting point yet to engage Palestinians in a dialogue that could lead to some broader understandings. But I was aware of this uh, problem of uh, the Palestinian Arab minority in Israel, who at the time were 17, 18 percent of the public today, 20 percent. Today, one of every five Israelis is a Palestinian Arab citizen of the state of Israel. And there were problems of discrimination, problems of lack of um, government decisions to fully integrate the Arab minority into the Israeli society. And I thought this was an issue where I could have an impact until a time came when the Israeli-Palestinian uh, peace process or dialogue could open up at a, at a better position. So I got involved in a program called Interns for Peace, which was just started by a reform American rabbi um, who wanted American Jews to come and live in Arab villages and work in problem in issues of community development and leadership development and develop programs of interaction between Jewish and Arab communities that were next to each other. So that's what I did my first two years in Israel. I lived in the Arab village of Kufar Kara in the little triangle area between Khader and Afula and got involved. In, and then eventually wrote to the prime minister saying that I thought this 
was the responsibility of the state of Israel to work on issues of democracy and equal rights between all of its citizens. Menachem Begin was the prime minister who, with all my uh, criticism of Menachem Begin's right-wing leanings, he was a Democrat. He believed in democracy, and he had spoken about the rights of all citizens and the need for equality. And when I wrote to him suggesting that a job be created of someone whose responsibility it is to work on bridging the gaps between Jews and Arabs in Israel and creating greater equality, he agreed. It took me 14 months to lobby till they found the right position and the budget to pay for it, but I became the first civil servant in Israel responsible for Jewish-Arab relations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that must have been a fascinating, a fascinating job. I want to ask you about your, your, your Palestinian, then, you know, when it moved on to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, some of the things that I've read about you say that you were, uh, an important protagonist in creating the Oslo process. So I, I, you know, we're, we're now, what is it, 25 years since Oslo? Uh, 25 years, yeah. So I'd love to get your, uh, your perspectives on that. Uh, what was your involvement and, and what did you, you think of the process? Well, in 1988, uh, quite some time before, between Oslo, after the beginning of the First Intifada, I created an organization called IPCRI, which was then called the Israel-Palestine Center for Research Information. It was a joint Israeli-Palestinian public policy think tank. We called it a do-tank also, um, run by Israelis and Palestinians together, dedicated to advancing solutions to the two-state a, a solution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There were two really radical ideas about the establishment of this organization, IPCRI. One was that Israelis and Palestinians from both sides of the Green Line were going to sit together and work together in one organization, run equally on an equal basis with two directors, an Israeli director, a Palestinian director, and a joint board of directors, and that we began our work from accepting the idea of two states for two people. Mutual recognition of the national and historic rights of both people within the land of Israel or Palestine, and that we had to address the issues that were in conflict, borders, sovereignty, future of Jerusalem, the Palestinian refugee issue, economic relations, water. We developed working groups of Israeli and Palestinian professionals um, during the 24 years that I was the co-director of IPCRI, we led together more than 2,000 working group meetings of Israeli and Palestinian professionals on every issue uh, crossing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or relationship. One of the main things that we did back in 1992 was create a secret back-channel working group of security experts, where we actually had former Israeli generals who were very close to the Rabin government, uh, from the Mossad, from the army, and from the Shin Bet, uh, sitting at a table together with Palestinians who came from Tunis, who came from Arafat's office, uh, dealing with the issues of how do we deal with basic security, with human security, with physical security against terrorists, and whether or not the Palestinians were ready to take on responsibilities of um, governance, of fighting terrorism. We dealt with issues of prisoner release, of of uh, fighting against terrorism, of in intelligence sharing. Um, I was told uh, by the former chief of staff of the Israeli army, Motogor, that the reports coming out of these security meetings are one of the things that convinced Rabin to give Shimon Peres the okay to move forward on the Oslo track. Absolutely fascinating. We're talking to Gershon Baskin today on the New Beer Review. He's a veteran peace activist, and we're just talking about his life and some of his work and some of the things that he's written, uh, and we're going to be back just after the break. To Coffee Addicts, I'm Adila, but you know me as Shmuel from Josie Blue. Are you hungry? I know we are to serve you. 
All I grab and go is made daily from the best quality fresh ingredients for you to enjoy. Josie Blue is very focused on giving you the continuous coffee experience at 17 Northfield Avenue, Glen Hazel. See you there. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. High FM. 101.9 Kai FM, I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. We're talking to Gershon Baskin today. He's a veteran peace activist and uh, we're chatting to him uh, today from Israel. By the way, if you want to be part of the conversation, you can WhatsApp us 061-895-1019 or you can SMS us on 34519. We'll be happy uh, to take any questions uh, and I have to say I've sp- Spoken to or listened to Gershon rather uh, when he has spoken in public, and I don't think that there is a question that he doesn't know the answer to. So, if there's anything you ever wanted to know <laughs> about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you can ask, because Gershon should have the answer somewhere along the line. Gershon, I want to ask you something about Oslo. One of the things that's been interesting to me is that uh, in the last couple of years, given this 25 years since Oslo and some of the breaks that we've seen in the peace process at the moment, there's been this concurrent criticism of the process from the left and the right. And, and so when you see that in Israeli politics, it's always worth exploring. And, and kind of what they were arguing was that the initial idea of the process was to basically make a deal with the Palestinians of the West Bank and try and find a way for them to live in a more autonomous way. Uh, and basically sort of in the occupation, but somehow it ended up trying to be a deal with the PLO as a total, and that was maybe a bridge too far for the process. What would be your comment on that kind of criticism of Oslo? I, th- I think that when we look back at the process, one, that we can all agree this was a failed process. It didn't meet its goals, and it led to consecutive rounds of horrific violence, um, uh, there were a lot of flaws in the process and there were a lot of misconceptions and there was bad communication and certainly different expectations between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And the Palestinians viewed the process as the grand deal. In fact, their narratives suggest that they gave up 78% of their dream of having a state in all of Palestine between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And in fact, they had recognized Israel within the Green Line borders of, of pre-1967. Um, that's not the Israeli narrative, but the Palestinians believe they made that great concession when they agreed to go into Oslo and sign the um, first Oslo agreement, the Declaration of Principles. They didn't know that they were going to be negotiating on the status of the West Bank and Gaza. They thought that that was going to become their state. Um, the Israelis didn't see it like that. There was no um, end state within the initial Oslo process, Rabin was not ready to commit to the idea of a Palestinian state at that point early in the process. It was this idea that through working together, the Israelis and the Palestinians would learn to trust each other and therefore make it easier to negotiate the difficult issues of Palestinian statehood, sovereignty, Jerusalem, refugees, etc. What happened, in fact, was quite the opposite. Although the Oslo process created 26 joint working groups of Israelis and Palestinians from the joint economic working group to the joint water working group, joint security mechanisms, joint veterinary services, phytosanitary, you name it, 26 different joint groups, and not one of them exists today as each side failed to implement its obligations that it took upon itself and there were more and more breaches in the agreements that were signed 
Each side learned not to trust the other side, and negotiating the hardcore issues became more and more difficult. I remind people that the Oslo process was a process. We did not sign a peace agreement with the Palestinians. We never reached that point. We came close. We came close both in Taba in January of 2001 and later uh, with Olmert and uh, Mahmoud Abbas, where they perhaps reached the closest we were there ever to an agreement, but we never reached a peace agreement. And the animosity, hatred, fear, and violence grew throughout the process, and there were no real means to correct it. We also ended up relying on third parties like the United States, who ended up being the worst possible mediators, um, and, and this is one of my criticisms of the whole process and, and the future of negotiations is the understanding that we have to do this ourselves directly. The best Israeli-Palestinian negotiations were direct with no one else in the room. And the worst negotiations were those that took place with the Americans mediating, not only because the Americans are not great at doing it, but because there's a process whereby when there's a table with three sides to it, the Israelis talk to the Americans, the Palestinians talk to the Americans, and the Israelis and the Palestinians don't talk to each other. And that's exactly what we need to have happen. We need to change the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians. And fundamentally, we need to understand that peace is not going to be built on walls and fences and barriers, but rather on cooperation, on bridging those walls and fences and barriers of getting people to work together, to understand each other, to speak each other's language, to research together, to share in academic life together. In every way that we can develop cooperation and partnership, that's what we need to be doing. But the Oslo process led us to do the exact opposite. Now, I want to ask you about the role of Hamas in all of this. Uh, because at its start, Hamas was more of a religious organization. They did aid work. Uh, they weren't specifically political. But there are some sort of allegations against the Rabin government that uh, they saw Hamas as a way of slowing down the process or, or, or getting in the way if they, if they needed it to be there. What is your, your make of, of Hamas and its, uh, you know, its connection to the process and the two sides? Uh, historically, Hamas was an outgrowth of Islamic associations that started in Gaza that were actually licensed and encouraged by the Israeli military governments in Gaza from the 1970s onward. And, and the Israeli side, the Israeli military, supported them as a counterbalance to the weight of the PLO that had its roots very deep within Gaza society. Um, Hamas was also an outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood that came from Egypt and the merging of these Islamic associations that were doing largely charity work and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, interface created the radical movement that we know of Hamas. Um, I don't think that uh, Rabin uh, wanted to engage Hamas in any way. I think that uh, uh, most Israeli governments uh, saw Hamas as a really dangerous element that could come if we fail to have a peace process with the Palestinians that would create moderation. In fact, what has happened is that Hamas has been the counterweight to those who supported Oslo or to those who saw in Arafat and the regime that he created a corrupt regime and Hamas presented itself as being the clean guys. Hamas won the elections back in 2006, not with a majority of support, but with a plurality of support. And they got votes from a lot of people who didn't support the ideology. In fact, I believe that the ideology of Hamas is only supported by 10 to 15 percent of Palestinians. And yet they have more popularity than that if there were elections for a lot of reasons. People vote for political parties for different reasons, not necessarily because they believe in the ideology.
The current government of Netanyahu, which has been in power for quite a long time, has, in my view, seen Hamas's regime in Gaza as something which enables Netanyahu to claim that we have no one to negotiate with on the Palestinian side. As long as the Palestinian house is divided, the PLO can't claim sole representation of the Palestinian people. And it's kind of a strategic um, achievement uh, to keep a weakened Hamas, Hamas in power in Gaza and a weakened Palestinian authority in power in the West Bank. Oh, the Palestinians are focused on their internal uh, divisions. Look at what's happening now with the possibility of, of some kind of arrangements vis-a-vis Gaza and Israel through the Egyptians and Israel presenting Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, is the main reason why we can't move forward. He's blocking any support for Gaza. This fits in very nicely to the strategy of the current Israeli government. It's interesting for me. I've, I've heard South African d- diplomats and officials say that they thought that holding an election at that point uh, in the Bush years, when uh, it must have been in the early 2000s or just before that, uh, was it was a, f- a strategic error that you don't have liberation movements or people who are fighting with one another spend time uh, on elections because they are divisive, and that rather they should have maintained. Uh, some some sort of united Palestinian front until such time as they had a proper process going forward. Would you, would you make of a criticism like that? Well, I, I, I'm a Democrat, and I believe in people having the right to choose their leaders. I think that the Palestinians handled those elections really badly, um, and the Hamas victory was the result of the failure of Fatah and other political parties within the Palestinian side to create unity amongst themselves. It, it, it could have been a different outcome if Fatah wasn't so divided within, if they had presented a united front, if they didn't have lists running against each other. Um, I understand the criticism. I think Mahmoud Abbas would, would say, yes, that's exactly why we haven't had elections for 12 years now in Palestine, because the house is divided. We need to create unity before we have elections. I do think that the next time the Palestinians do hold elections, it's likely to be in a situation where they'll try to create unity through elections, allow the Palestinians once again to choose their leaders. I, I think it's a very bad situation that we have a leader like Mahmoud Abbas, who's in the 12th year of a four-year term. Um, it's very difficult to speak about his legitimacy as a leader in a situation where there haven't been elections for so long. Yet, on the other hand, it's clear that he is the leader and people allow him to continue to lead um, it's certainly not our job in Israel to select the Palestinian leaders. It's something the Palestinians need to do. I personally look forward to the young people in Palestine standing up and taking their role in the political leadership of their own people and future state. I think it's badly needed, um, and I, I don't think there's any chance of negotiating agreement between Netanyahu and, and Mahmoud Abbas. So I look forward to a new generation of leaders both in Israel and in Palestine. So talk to us now a little bit talking about Hamas, about your role uh, with Gilad Shalit and and getting him out. Uh, I understand that you could have uh, relations with the Palestinians in the West Bank and uh, obviously the Israeli Arab community, but how do you end up uh, talking to uh, an Islamic Islamist group like like Hamas? First of all, in September of 2005, one of my wife's first cousins was kidnapped and murdered by Hamas, um, which... <laughs> When he was kidnapped and disappeared, a family had asked me to help use my contacts to try and locate him. I tried and I failed. And at his funeral in Jerusalem, I swore to myself that if ever again an opportunity came along where someone asked me to help to do something, I would do everything that was humanly possible. 
Several months later, I was at a conference on economic development in the Eastern Mediterranean in Cairo, and I was approached by a professor of economics from Gaza, from the Islamic University of Gaza, who presented himself as being a member of Hamas and wanted to talk to an Israeli, something that he had never done before. I had never talked to someone from Hamas. We started talking. That led to uh, a, a longer, more continued talk. I went to Gaza. It was still possible to go to Gaza then. I met some of his colleagues. We tried to create a broader dialogue. It didn't succeed because the Hamas leadership um, refused to accept the idea of a dialogue. And um, But we developed a personal relationship. And on uh, the sixth day after Khalid was abducted on July 1st, 2006, this professor from the Islamic University of Gaza called me and said, Gershon, we had to do something. I said, what can we do? He said, let's try to open up a dialogue between the soldier's family and the Hass leadership. Later that day, a phone call took place between Noam Jalit, Gilad Jalit's father, and one of the Hamas leaders. And so began my engagement in trying to open up a channel of dialogue, um, which produced two and a half months later the first proof of Gilad Jalit being alive. Um, and another five years later, until the Israeli government uh, accepted the idea of a secret direct back channel between Israel and Hamas through me, which led several months later in October, October 18th, 2011, almost seven years ago, uh, for Gilad Shalit to come home. It must have been an amazing thing to have to sit in and work through. It's, it's proper cloak and dagger stuff if you are having to shuttle between uh, the office of the prime minister and, and Hamas in order to get a soldier out. A lot of it was actually done with SMSs and faxes and emails. Um, I did have several face-to-face meetings with my Hamas counterpart um, twice in Gaza and twice in Cairo. Um, but I was not a negotiator, so to speak, in the person who makes decisions. I was a message carrier. I opened the doors. I suggested ideas. I took some initiatives to break some some uh, deadlocks in the talks. In the end of the day, it was the Hamas leadership and the government of Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who called the shots on how this was to be done. Um, Netanyahu's main emissary in the last stage of the process was David Maidan, a senior uh, Mossad agent who was in charge of the case, and I was in direct contact with David every day for months. Um, also, mostly by telephone and SMSs. We sat together several times. Uh, I met with his team, uh, who came from different uh, elements of the intelligence community. But a lot of this was done through the technology of of, of over Skype and and. Uh, I don't think we had WhatsApp then, but it was regular SMSs <laughs> and emails and phone conversations. Even your uh, relationship with Hamas, I mean, do you think that uh, initiatives for a long-term truce is, is possible with, with given their outlook and, uh, and their current uh, situation? I think so. I think we're also close to it. It's a lot it's going to depend on each side understanding that they're not going to get everything that they want. Hamas is not going to lay down its weapons, and Hamas is not going to stop developing a military uh, option. Uh, This is not going to be part of the deal. Israel is not going to fully end the closure of Gaza. Israel is not going to allow Hamas to build an airport that's going to fly in and out freely from Gaza. There will likely to be some kind of port arrangement and the borders will be opened up much more for economic uh, commerce and for people's movement than it is today. But that kind of limited understanding is possible. Um, It will be negotiated finally through the Egyptians. 
but it must also include a new prisoner deal because there are the bodies of two Israeli soldiers, Hadar Golden and uh, Oron Shaul, and two Israeli who are the bodies of soldiers and two civilians who are presumed to be alive, Avera Mengisto, an Ethiopian Israeli, and Hisham Asayid, a Bedouin Israeli, are being held captive by Hamas. And Hamas has his demands to Israel on a prisoner release. And there will be some kind of prisoner deal done between the two sides. And I don't think we're too far away from it. Do you it's think it's a good idea? Now. I mean, do you not think we're potentially creating another Lebanon-type situation on the southern border? Oh, I think that um, Hamas will always have less free action than a sovereign state of Lebanon has. And there will remain an economic, uh, a military blockade on Gaza. Uh, they won't be allowed. Israel won't allow. Neither will the Egyptians for to import weapons. That won't stop them from developing weapons inside of Gaza. And this list of what's called dual-purpose goods will be kept. It will be smaller and more limited than it is today. But the ability of Hamas to develop serious uh, weapons won't be there, nor will they be able to import them. Um, simply the geography won't allow for that to happen, and nor will Israel, nor will Egypt. So I, I don't see it as a Lebanon. I think that there are um, a, there's a strong desire on the Palestinian side to see a united Palestine and not a three-state solution, but really that Gaza and West Bank are really one family and need to be reunited politically, and then there needs to be some physical link between the two territories. But I don't see that happening in the immediate future. Eventually that will happen. Now, I want to shift slightly, Gershon. I, I was sitting with uh, <clears throat> someone who's very involved with the settlement movement uh, a few a few months ago, and he was talking to me about his view on the on the situation and and how does he see a solution to the problem. And he's saying to me, look, the the key thing is that we have to find a way to work with the Palestinians on trade. The economy has to work. Uh, they have to see uh, Jews in general as being a people who uh, are prepared to trade with them and create jobs and and you know a future for their family, and it's it struck me as almost being a, a quite a peacenik kind of uh, approach to uh, you know to 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 the the situation. And certainly, I've seen some of your writings uh, pushing this idea of of economics as a key way of engaging the Palestinians. But it seems to me to also be limited uh, if if you can't. Uh, fundamentally change the mindsets of, of both sides. So I'm interested in what your view is of economics as a tool for helping to breed peace and, and understanding. Yeah, I, you know, there was this terrorist attack that took place last week in the Barkhan industrial zone in the West Bank near Ariel, and two Israelis were killed by a Palestinian worker who worked in the, in the um, economic uh, industrial zone, which is a place of great employment for Palestinians. There are an estimated 30,000 Palestinians who work in settlements or settlement factories or settlement industrial zones today. And I was interviewed by someone from The Marker, the economic newspaper of Haaretz, who said, isn't this a great example of coexistence? And I said, certainly from the Israeli point of view, this is coexistence. This is what your settler friend is exactly talking about. From the Palestinian point of view, that's not coexistence, or it's coexistence between the donkey and the person who rides the donkey. 
Um, it is classic or classic form of colonialism that we use economics to make the natives happy, to give them a better life. They get paid more in the industrial zone in Barkhan than they would working in Nablus or in Ramallah. This is for sure true. The, the more they can be based on the Israeli economy, the better their personal status will be. And the Palestinian Authority can't fight against it because it has no jobs to offer as an alternative, even though there is a clear desire on the part of the Palestinians to boycott settlement products. Palestinians are working settlements and building settlements, and there's little that anyone can say about it. But I think there has to be an understanding that there's something inherently wrong with this attitude that we can have all the land between the river and the sea and also have peace and call it coexistence because we're giving the Palestinians a better than they have currently living under Israeli military occupation, but only working with the Palestinian areas. Um, we have a problem also from the Jewish point of view, I believe, that we call ourselves the democratic nation state of the Jewish people, and yet between the river and the Mediterranean Sea today, there are at least 50% non-Jews, and those non-Jews living in the territories occupied by Israel in 1967 do not live in a, democra- a democratic state. So both pillars of the definition of who we are as Israelis, the democratic nation-state of the Jewish people, today are false. We have a binational one-state between the river and the sea, and it's not democratic, and it's not Jewish. And I think that's very problematic, in the, and the more that these people who are refusing to understand that they need to be a Palestinian state where they have sovereignty and self-determination, and want to continue to hold on those territories and think that offering the Palestinians a better economic life is going to solve problems, are very blind. It reminds me, and perhaps some of your listeners won't like this, but it reminds me very much of the white attitude of South Africa during apartheid. Uh, who, people who said the blacks have a much better life under our rule than they will under their own rule. Um, and, and, and that's the comparison that I make, even with all the differences between apartheid and the current reality in Israel, there are a lot of similarities also. Well, there you go. Uh, I'm sure that will make people here very happy, Gershwin. <laughs> We're going to take... Sure. Uh... It's difficult to listen to. I know that. I understand that the comparisons are difficult and that inside of Israel proper, between the Jewish and Arab citizens of Israel, there is apartheid. We have a challenged democracy. We have problems. But there's no apartheid. But And... The reality in the West Bank is not apartheid either, but it is a form of colonial rule that has similarities to what existed in South Africa in the past. Well, Gershon, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking again. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. Speaking today to Gershon Baskin, who is a veteran peace activist in Israel. And uh, we've been chatting about a variety of issues. If you want to ask him any questions, 061-895-1019. That's the WhatsApp line, and you can SMS us 34519. Gershon, I would say that... You know, your model of talking directly to the Palestinians, having them figure out their issues with the Israelis and the Israelis with them, has basically come under three main challenges in in the last uh, couple of years, or, or maybe not challenges, but three 
different views of how the situation could be. Uh, the one I would say is the group of people, and I see the INS, INSS, the, the big think tank, has just come out with the one mm-hmm. who's saying, look, uh, we should have unilateral action, we should create a, a, a Palestinian autonomy, even if it's not a state. Other people are saying, look, uh, the Palestinians have to be forced to give up their narrative of the river to the sea if we're ever going to have any peace. And so we have to do these more aggressive unilateral actions like the embassy move or like defunding UNRWA, this kind of thing. And then the last one would be BDS from the other side saying, well, you know, uh, talking to Israelis is the problem. And if we can just crush Israel through uh, boycotts, through delegitimization like the apartheid analogy, uh, then, then we can win that way. What do you say about some of these counteracting forces that are, are kind of pushing back against the dialogue model i think i think that we have to be conscious that the best option is always to engage uh, i understand it's difficult on both sides now to engage public i've been an advocate for a very long time of secret direct back channels between the leaders i tried to encourage it i carried three times messages from Mahmoud abbas to benjamin netanyahu offering a secret direct back channel that were all rejected by netanyahu um, I don't think that we can move forward with these two leaders power today. We need a change. Change is coming, certainly probably on the Palestinian side before the Israeli side. Um, and we'll see what develops. I'm not a great um, a supporter of unilateral steps. I think that unilateral disengagement from Gaza, the way that it was done, led to the situation that we have today of Hamas ruling Gaza today. The narrative was that the moderates, those who wanted to negotiate, couldn't achieve any results, and the Israelis only understand the language of violence and force, which is the same thing that the Israelis say about the Arabs. Um, I don't like that model, but it's a better option than the current status quo, which is also a misconception. There is no status quo. The situation is always getting worse. It's not getting better. So I think that uh, Israel pulling back forces, freezing settlements, and those kind of things sends a message to the Palestinian side that when you're ready to negotiate, there are serious people on the Israeli side who are ready to negotiate. I remind you that the INSS, while it has some very senior milita- former military people there, um, they do not represent the views of the current Israeli government, and they certainly won't implement the INSS plan of the steps of setting a border, which is more or less to be the separation barrier line, which annexes about 11% of the West Bank into Israel. Um, but there are positive steps there, such as freezing settlements outside of the um, separation barrier and perhaps even moving back some of those settlements into the settlement block areas. So those kind of things are positive steps forward. Um, BDS is a situation where and we might end up getting to, because if there are no options left for the partition of the land of Israel into two states and we're left with a one-state option only, with millions of Israelis and Palestinians between the river and the sea, then the fight is going to be for a democratic Israel-Palestine, not a Jewish state of Israel with a Palestinian minority or majority that doesn't have equal rights. And and that's where I'm afraid this government of Benjamin Netanyahu is leading us to this one-state option with no democracy and no equality. And then the whole world is going to say, no, Israel is not a legitimate state, a state which maintains a minority position and control over a majority who don't have equal human and political rights is not acceptable. 
Whereas I think that an overwhelming majority of countries of the world today accept Israel within the 1967 borders with the idea of the two-state solution with a legitimate Israel and a legitimate Palestine. That's going to disappear very soon if we don't figure out a way to end Israel's control over the Palestinians. So it certainly is a, a very uh, interesting take and a slightly uh, depressing one. Uh, Gershon, if people want to find out more about uh, your work, and I know you've written a number of books, where can they find that out? Where can they get more information? Well, I, I have a weekly column in the Jerusalem Post, which appears every Thursday under the title Encountering Peace. Um, I'm on Facebook, Gershon Baskin, on Twitter, Gershon Baskin. My email is gershonbaskin at gmail.com. Uh, I'm accessible. I'm easy to find. There's a, a Gershon Baskin webpage that has an archive of all the articles that I've written at gershonbaskin.org or gershonbaskin.com. So I'm, I'm pretty out there in the cyber world. Well, uh, I indeed you are, and I would encourage you to, uh, if you are listening, to, to like Gershon's page or have a look at his columns. They are certainly very interesting. Gershon, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us on the New Blue Review. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Gershon Baskin, the veteran peace activist, speaking to us today all the way from Israel. A frequency like no other. 101.9 High FM. 101.9 FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. Welcome back to the program. Thought I would end off our final story today with something a little bit lighter. Uh, the Norman Hotel in Tel Aviv, a boutique hotel, has just been announced as, as Condé Nast, which is one of the big travel magazines, as one of their top hotels of the year. Now, I mean, I'm sure that's very nice. There are a number of other Israeli hotels that uh, were on uh, on the list and uh, they they also made it so why is such a big deal well i'll tell you why first of all it's not uh, the you know the king david or the mamilla which also made the list uh, the norman is a very interesting bauhaus type hotel uh, it's on the rothschild boulevard in tel aviv which is the big you know exciting a hip part of of mainstream Tel Aviv, and it still retains that old Bauhaus look. So it looks like a hotel from the 1920s. But that's not the interesting story. Interesting story is it's almost built as a homage to a South African. Can you believe that? A guy by the name of Norman Lurie. Norman Lurie uh, was part uh, of the British Brigade in Palestine in uh, uh, in I think World War One, World War Two. And uh, after he was, uh, Ed would be World War One, excuse me. And after the war, he actually emigrated to what was then uh, Palestine. And he started up a film company. And uh, he, he, he was, uh, he used to take videos. He used to distribute Hollywood films in Israel. And he, he was very much on that, um, you know, in, in, in that arena, take, doing documentaries, uh, etc. He, he also decided to build himself his own hotel, which was something that he had seen whilst he was uh, in uh, in in uh, in Palestine in the Shavei Zion, Zion uh, uh, Kibbutz, a bunch of a group who had set up a, a settlement there, and uh, he created this little hotel, uh, and it was very well uh, liked. Kirk Douglas stayed there, all the elite in Israel, because he had made it into a proper uh, boutique hotel, and eventually this hotel got. Um, bought over and it became a different hotel and then a lodge and then eventually an absorption center and eventually it was closed down entirely and 
And, and that was the end of the story, except that the son of Norman decided that he was going to honor his father's life. And so he created the Norman Hotel in Tel Aviv. And everything in the hotel has not to do with his father per se, but to try and bring back that sort of Hollywood-esque uh, inside Israel feel that, that his father brought with, with the films and with the, the hotel that he built uh, in uh, in. In, in what was called the Dolphin. It was called the Dolph Dolphin Hotel in Chevet Zion. And, and so that's what permeates the entire hotel's decor. All the artists are Israeli. They have uh, certain personal touches that they always do. And everything is geared towards, uh, m- memorializing, uh, this guy's, uh, father, which I just thought was such a beautiful story about how a commercial business is not just, uh, uh making money. It's also about, uh, just finding uh, somebody else's personal way of memorizing, uh, memorializing someone. Imagine having your own hotel as a way of of doing that. So I would uh, encourage you to have a look at uh, have a look at the story. It's beautiful. Uh, the Norman Hotel in Tel Aviv, uh, also being recognized internationally by Condé Nast as one of the top hotels uh, in Israel. So if you're a high-end hotel user, uh, I would definitely encourage you to go have uh, a look and have a bit of a stay or even just go check out the bar. That brings us to the end of the show for today. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it here on 101.9 High FM. Thank you so much uh, to Mandy, who helped uh, put the show together, production side. Thank you to Craig, pushes all the big red buttons. Vusi, who works us uh, on the sound side. By the way, next week, I would diarize it right now. I have a, a fantastic guest, two guests coming in. They're like the Shawshank Redemption of South Africa. Uh, if you like the movie Shawshank Redemption, uh, trust me, it has nothing on what South Africa has to do. And we, uh, an amazing story of a Jewish woman. Uh, and a man from Limpopo, uh, and we're going to be interviewing about them with interviewing them about that brings us to the end for today. Thank you for, so much for listening, and we'll chat to you next week.